This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move to a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end we have a quiz. That's right. And this week, we are looking back at some highlights of Celebrity Jeopardy throughout the years. We definitely know who all these people are. Yes. No, we do. We are aware of pop culture or whatever. Yes. Definitely not just spending every evening with our history flashcards. But our history flashcards never judge us. <laughs> I have not watched a whole lot of Celebrity Jeopardy. I don't know if they've done much Celebrity Jeopardy since I became like a loyal every single night viewer. It's, just it's been a while since thing. they've had one. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of fun. Uh, so on Monday, we had a game which originally aired on October 26, 1992. The contestants are Regis Philbin, a TV host from live with Regis and Kathy Lee. Um, and I believe Regis passed away the day that this re-aired. Is that, am I remembering that right? Or with the day after maybe? Uh, I, it was before they, it re-aired because they, they had the in memoriam. That's right. That's right. So I think it was, it was that weekend before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Donna Mills, an actress from Knott's Landing and Carol Burnett, an actress, comedian, and star from stage, screen, and television. Yes. Yeah. I love Carol Burnett. Me too. She uh, she did a little bit of audiobook work with uh, with kids' books, and my parents would always uh, make sure and get Carol Burnett children's audiobooks to listen to in the car. That was like my <laughs> first exposure to Carol Burnett. Not the last. That would be weird for me to like. This is this is my entry point for Carol Burnett is reading children's books. But yeah, um, she did. Am I remembering this correctly? I think that she did like all of the Winnie the Pooh books, and I listened to them like hundreds of times. Um, hmm. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Anyway, we got the Jeopardy categories: European history, Italian food. Women in sports, fashion designers, actors on stage, and U.S. states. And uh, part of Celebrity Jeopardy being a whole different thing is that there was a lot more joshing and a lot less getting through the material. Um, yeah. Yeah, my mom hates Celebrity Jeopardy because of that. She's like, why do they have to talk so much? Why can't we see? We don't get to see the questions. <laughs> Uh, she yeah. like purposely did not watch this week. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So a big part of that was Regis not being able to ring in mm -hmm. uh, for at least the first half of the Jeopardy round and then having a bit of a chip on his shoulder the rest of the game. Was there already? I remember when Regis started hosting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, there was like some kind of. I think lighthearted, like rivalry, like beef with uh, with Alex. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if it stretches back before this, but it sure felt like this was, you know, this this was the beginning or or, uh, or part of that. 
Sure. I mean, Millionaire was many years out from there. Yeah. Because right. this was 1992, and yeah, it didn't start until was 2000, I yeah, think? Uh, ni- 99 premiered in 99, August 99. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it was a while out from this, but it, it felt like but uh, he, cl- he clearly held a grudge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he uh, he was dynamic and not too happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Carol Burnett just played a solid game. Yeah, she's she's good. She's she did. She did a nice job. The difficulty of the clues were not particularly high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, also it's for charity, so. Yep. I mean, you want to make them gettable. Yeah. I was impressed with Regis actually uh, when, when we got to the two hundred dollar level of U.S. states rate. Like Regis had not been getting in at all, and then all of a sudden there he is with King Kamehameha. Uh, mm-hmm. The clue being. Hawaii State Seal features a shield flanked by the goddess of liberty and this king. You know, so like being able to like it's a thing that trivia people know, but being able to kind of pull it out at the at the right moment, remember, you know, mm. r- remember the name. It's not nothing. Yeah. And then of course, Carol makes the joke that we all make when it comes mm-hmm. to Jeopardy. He gets talked to about his phrasing, so he says, who is King Kamehameha? And then Carol informs him, he's the one on the state seal that they're talking about. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's never not funny. Yep. Uh, All right. Uh, We we get the Daily Double um, in the fashion designers category. It's at the $300 level. Uh, Regis finds it, and he wagers 400 of his... 800 this is before the man <laughs> before the the dollar increase mm-hmm. and geez just all of these numbers seem so small to me yeah so he wagers 400 of his 800 carol's at 1100 and donna's at 1000 uh and he gets the clue before he became a couturier Mamboucher edited the paris edition of this <laughs> u.s fashion magazine <laughs> sorry I'm sorry. Can I? Should I give it a little more? Was it not French enough? Leave it. Leave it. In. It's great. You sure? Yeah, that was good. I mean, I could give it more if you need. Yeah. More of the genre. Alex just sort of. I mean, he 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 loves the French accent, but like you know, he he works it in all casual like, and then then you can't remember how anything is supposed to sound. Yeah. Anyway, Regis kvetches about it and mm-hmm. says, "You really make it hard." Or something. Uh, and he guesses, what is Women's Wear Daily? I, I don't know if that's actually a magazine or not. Oh, that's a, that's totally a magazine. Yeah, he went just a little too obscure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was Vogue. There yeah. We so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Carol is in the lead at 2,000. Donna is right behind at 1,900. And Regis is at 900. Mm. And they get the double Jeopardy categories. General Science. Song Standards. Dance. Hobbies. Shakespeare, and old movies. And of the 30 clues on the board, <sighs> they revealed 16, right? Am mm-hmm. I doing my math right here? Yep. I, yeah, 16. Barely uh, include, half. <laughs> yes, just slightly over half, uh, including one of the two daily doubles in the round. I was really surprised that they barely touched Shakespeare and they barely touched dance. Um, yeah. I would expect show business people. I would especially like Carol Burnett. Really? Like, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I would have expected her to head for those. Although, to be fair, she they did that. only get through half the round. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, we get Daily Double number two, which turns out to be the last Daily Double, as the ninth pick um, at the $800 level of song standards. Regis finds it and wagers... 700 uh, of his 2700. Uh, <laughs> he has a whole back and forth about wanting to catch up with Carol, who is at 4000. Donna's at 1900 at this point. He gets the clue. It's the question asked in I Got Rhythm. He comes up with, uh, he says, what is, who could ask for anything more? Although I guess, you know, you could, you could, uh, you could, you know. Just say. Yeah. You could, who? You could, although like the the contestant coordinators always say don't don't give the uh, don't give the judges any room, just always throw the what is on there. It's never gonna yeah. hurt, hurt you. Um, you know, don't get clever. That's that's correct. However, he's done his math wrong, so he lands at thirty four hundred. He's still six hundred dollars behind. Oh, goodness. And then he was confused by it. <laughs> like, right, I mean, uh, we've talked about the stage lights, and clearly, clearly, he, you know, Regis was nervous in front of an audience. So Yeah, it's just very overwhelming being on TV like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's definitely yeah. not used to it. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not every single morning. Right. Um, right below that, we had another funny funny moment uh the clue was the night is young the skies are clear and if you want to go walking dear it's this it's this it's this um regis rings in with it's delightful it's de lovely it's and then he can't come up with anything because he's missed the middle one um Mm -hmm. so he drops down uh carol gets in and sings it uh it's delightful it's delicious it's de lovely um regis wants to know if he can get two-thirds credit (laughs) Unfortunately, Jeopardy doesn't work like that. There's no partial credit in Jeopardy. Alas, right? Yeah. Um, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Carol Burnett has 5,200. Regis is at 3,800. Donna is at 2,100. The final Jeopardy category is historic names. And the clue is, for his licentious behavior, Monk Grigory... Yefimovich Novik earned this nickname, meaning debauched one. None of them could think of anything. Um, Donna wagered 2,100, everything she had, uh, and guessed who was Don Juan. Not a bad guess. Yeah, not a bad guess. If you don't know. Yeah. Regis wagered 1,500 of his 3,800 and didn't come up with anything at all. And then Carol wagered 2300 And guessed who was the Marquis de Sade? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Carol wins this one with $2,900. Um, but Jeopardy gives $10,000 to each of their chosen charities, uh, which are Amphar for Carol, uh, the Earth Communications Office for Donna, and Cardinal Hayes High School for Regis Philbin. Mm-hmm. Did you say what the correct response was? Oh, goodness. I did not. Uh, so the correct response here is Rasputin. Yeah. I I managed to get it, although I can never quite remember the word Rasputin until it is almost too late. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't know it. Uh, I mean, I, I got there because of Monk and Grigory. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
The only one I know of is Rasputin, which I guess mm-hmm. would fit. Although, I, again, I you know I was not aware that that it wasn't actually his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just have like this block on his name where um, the image of the animated Rasputin from the children's movie Anastasia, Anastasia. pops mm-hmm. into my head, and then I'm like, that guy. What's his name? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the think music is playing, and I, <laughs> I get to it right before the end. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I can and, I can never remember his name. And then you think of a bat who is for some reason named Bartok. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. Should go back to that one. I remember it being pretty good. Moving on to Tuesday's game. This is from February 5th, 2001, and it was featuring the contestants Harry Connick Jr a musician and actor from Hope Floats, Nathan Lane, an actor from The Producers, and Jodie Foster, an actress, director, and producer from The Silence of the Lambs. These, you know, introductions are obviously not, like, uh, exhaustive of their <laughs> accomplishments. These are, uh, you know, as Alex points out, and as the, as a, you know, Johnny said in, in, in the intros, like, highly accoladed people. Yeah, uh, and very impressive play in this game, mm-hmm. which we'll yeah. talk about. Uh, they get the Jeopardy round categories: citizenship test, better known as holidays, pop music, history from Hollywood, and talk nonsense. And wouldn't you know it, Harry starts out by running the pop music category. It was very impressive. Yeah, um, and then asking if he can keep going and have like I think he asked for a pop music for ten thousand. Yeah, That's charming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, really solid play. You know, they had fun with it, but also got through the majority of the material with um, not a whole lot of wrong answers. No, and only uh, uh, only a couple of triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The. Daily Double comes up at the $500 level of the holidays category. Jodie Foster finds it. Feels very weird summarizing (laughs) Celebrity Jeopardy. (laughs) Um, And wagers $500, which is the maximum. She has $200 at that point. Um, Nathan Lane has $200. Harry Connick Jr. has $1,100. She gets the clue. Reputedly, the first Christmas tree in England was the one Prince Albert gave this queen in 1841. And she correctly responds, who is Queen Victoria? Mm-hmm. I didn't know many of the uh, the better known as clues. Yeah, they were all were actors. The, yeah, I feel like uh, being in show business gave the contestants a leg up on this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, four out of five of them, I did not get to. Norma Jean Baker is Marilyn Monroe. I know that because mm-hmm. that's kind of common trivia kind of thing. But all the other ones, it was like, I think I've heard of this. Yeah. Alan Stewart Konigsberg is Woody Allen. Ramon Estevez. I recognized that as one of the Sheens. I mm-hmm. I correctly guessed Martin, but it was a guess. Uh, Nathan, Nathan Lane guessed who is Charlie Sheen. Uh, Jodie Foster got the rebound, uh, correctly responding who is Martin Sheen. Nicholas Coppola is the real name of uh, Nicholas Cage, and Bernard Schwartz is the real name of Tony Curtis. Who knew? Nathan Lane knew. Nathan did. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Nathan Lane is at $2,100 in the lead. 
Jodie Foster has 1,800, Harry Connick Jr. has 1,000, and they get the double Jeopardy categories. Ballet, Forgotten But Not Gone, F in Geography, F in quotation marks, Recent Movies, Literature, and A Little French. I'm purposely not going to talk about A Little French category. Okay. Because I'm too good at French pronunciations, and I don't want to show off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could pronounce the words, but I feel like it's, uh, you know, what's well, straightforward. Yeah. The $200 clue there actually is is, uh, is an interesting little thing to know, is that uh, chaise long, French for long chair, got Americanized to this. Uh, it's chaise lounge, right? Like, yes. uh, we just we misread it, switched the letters yeah. around. <laughs> But because we're American, we're right. So yeah, the way mm-hmm. we saw it was correct. Yeah. All right. So Daily Double number two is in the recent movies category. Nathan found it. Uh, he was at 4,100, which was in the lead. Jody was at 3,000 and Harry's at 1,800. Uh, and he wagered 3,000, making one of the bigger bets we've seen from these old episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets the clue. In 1998, Ray Fine's brother, Joseph played this writer in love and he gets that it's shakespeare in love which apparently is a recurring theme on this podcast (laughs) it is now (laughs) uh let's put that one on the list of jeopardy clues you can get correct by having seen shakespeare in love it's a growing list i got it correct and i've never seen shakespeare in love Mm. yes i guess you don't have to have seen shakespeare in love for this one just know that it was a 1998 film, and it won Best mm. Picture. It sure did. Gwyneth Paltrow is still not a health expert. Um, and Saving Private Ryan right. is still a better movie. <laughs> Daily Double number three. Hooray, they got to Daily Double number three. Yay. Uh, is, it, is in the Forgotten But Not Gone category at the $800 level. Jodie Foster finds it as the 23rd pick, and wagers 2500 of her 5800 Nathan is at 8,900 at that point, and Harry has 3,800. And the clue is, at a dance class, you can still learn this hot 1920s dance named for a South Carolina city. Uh, And she correctly responds, what is the Charleston? Yeah. Yeah. They saved the ballet Um, category for last. Yeah. Although, they did get all of them correct, so. Yeah. You also didn't really, I mean, they were all... It was one of those ballet categories where you don't actually need to know anything about ballet itself. Yeah, the the questions or the the answers had ballet in them, but the the correct response was not necessarily a ballet answer. Yeah, it was so. all sort of questions about the source material for various ballets. So, yeah, um, yeah much more easily uh, gettable. Yeah, but they they made it through the entire board and. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Harry is in third place at 4,800, Jody's at 8,300, and Nathan is at 11,100. Now, if we were to uh, move this to modern day and doubled up all those scores, those would be really good Jeopardy scores. Yeah. Like, really yeah. good. This this was a, a very impressive game. Uh, they get the final Jeopardy category, Famous Ships, and my wife's blind guess was... Uh, if if the year was you know two thousand one or whatever, her her blind guess was Justin Timberlake and uh, Britney Spears because people were shipping them at that time. 
Uh, they get the it's a pretty famous ship yes they get the clue in december 1620 this vessel came ashore at a secondary location because of a shortage of beer harry wagered 4700 of his 4800 and he guessed what is the hms budweiser which is a hilarious joke that is great Uh, yep very good joke jody bet it all because you're playing for charity might as well and she got it correct with what is mayflower and then nathan wagered 10,000 and also said what is the Budweiser which makes it an even more hilarious joke (laughs) and they high-fived it was so charming it was great but that was still incorrect not only because you know it's not just her majesty's ship Uh, so Jody ended up with 16,600 which they added another 5,000 to so she won $21,600 for the Hollywood Education and Literacy Project and then uh, Nathan and Harry both got 10000 for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and the Jimmy Fund. Mm-hmm. That's right. So on Wednesday, we had the game from February 6, 2001. Uh, the contestants are Charles Barkley, a former pro basketball player from Turner Network Television. Martha Stewart, a TV personality from Martha Stewart Living. And... Jeff Probst, a TV personality from Rock and Roll Jeopardy and Survivor. And the Jeopardy categories are Airplane Reading, Zooology, uh, which is about zoos, Treasure Island, Famous Pairs, Rock and Roll Jeopardy, and X Caliber, X in quotation marks. And I just gotta say, I love Charles Barkley. Mm-hmm. Not sure why yeah. I have such a soft spot for him, but man... I love Charles Barkley. <laughs> yeah. Something just really tickled me about watching Martha Stewart play Jeopardy. I don't know. She did fine, but everything was just very, you know, sort of Martha Stewart correct, you know? Sure. Yeah. And I guess that's the way it is for all the the celebrities. They kind of just approach it as they are. I feel like, you yeah. know, regular Jeopardy contestants, we're kind of, we're, 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 you know, we're intimidated and excited and we kind of have an idea of what you're supposed to be like on Jeopardy, you know? Because mm-hmm. we know from watching, we're like, okay, we, you know, we want to be, we want to move fast through it and we want to be correct and we don't want to be embarrassing or like whatever. And celebrities are just like, no, this is another gig. So. Yep. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun to see some contestants like so at ease up there. Kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Charles took a long time to uh, to get in, as in he he did not uh, ring in during the Jeopardy round. <laughs> oh, I missed that. <laughs> You're right, he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh which goodness. means he didn't get any wrong in the Jeopardy round. It's true. Not a one. And as as he told Alex, unless I know, I ain't touching nothing. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. I just hadn't I hadn't realized that he that he literally did not ring in once. Yeah. And he might have been behind on the buzzer on some things, but yeah, yeah, he he Mm -hmm. did not get in for a response at all. Um, This game was not as uh, complete, I would say, as the previous game, but it was still fun Mm -hmm. to watch. So we get Daily Double, we get the first Daily Double in the Rock and Roll Jeopardy category. Jeff, to that point, had been doing well, though he uh, couldn't remember the Go-Go's at the $300 level. Uh, but he finds it at pick number 10, and he wagers 600 of his 1,200. Uh, Martha's behind at 700, and, and Charles is playing it safe at zero. 
And he gets the clue. This interracial soul group got everyday people to dance to the music. And he guesses who is Earth, Wind, and Fire, but it is Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. So he drops down behind Martha Stewart. In the zoology category at the $500 level, uh, we had to identify uh, the Midwest state where you can find the Brookfield Zoo. Yeah, didn't we just talk about this? I feel like I just uh, talked about this with someone. Well, there was just a Learned League question ah. about what you can find in Brookfield. Mm-hmm. That must yeah. have been it. That must be yes. what's reminding me of it. Yep, that's what it is. Um, I missed the Learned League question, but I got the Jeopardy question. I did question. too, but I didn't miss yeah. this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something right. stuck. We're learning. Yay! <laughs> Finally. Uh, yeah. Uh, I will never remember which pair is which, though, in Famous Pairs at the $300 level. Seen here, they were quite a pair. They show a clip uh, of, you know, an old comedy, uh, and it was Laurel and Hardy, and I, any time either Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and or Costello Abbott and Costello. Up, I'm just like, well, time to flip a coin. <laughs> yep. And I flipped incorrectly on this one. Not that it mattered on the couch. Mm. I shouted out Laurel and Hardy and then remembered that I was supposed to consider whether it might be Abbott and Costello. So um, Mm -hmm. I was lucky. Uh, Well, at the end of the Jeopardy round, they left six clues on the board. So not that bad, but still some money missing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeff is at 1100. Martha's in the lead at 1500. And Charles still is at zero. Or should I say Sir Charles, as uh, Johnny introduced him. Sir Charles Barkley. And they get the double Jeopardy round categories. American history. When MGM was grand. The Rat Pack. Science. Hey, sport. And Golden Nuggets. So this this episode uh, was filmed... At the Las Vegas Hilton, and so it seemed like they they halfway committed to the uh, Vegas theme here for Double Jeopardy instead of just going all the way for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, this was a this was around they didn't get through a whole lot of the clues. Uh, they left eight on the board, including one of the daily doubles. The very first clue. In Hay Sport, on January 13th, 1999, this Chicago Bulls player retired after 13 seasons in which he averaged 31.5 points a game, and Martha Stewart beat Charles in on the buzzer. Charles Barkley. Which is yeah. just like, oof. Yeah. Yeah. That's but Michael Jordan, Charles in does, case anybody didn't know. Yes. Uh, but Charles does get in on the on the fourth question in Golden Nuggets at the $400 level uh, for his role in Castaway. Tom Hanks won one of these awards in 2001. Uh, he knew that was a Golden Globe, and then he got into the mix. Yep, he's on the board. Yep. So we find Daily Double number two, which will turn out to be the last Daily Double, uh, as the 22nd pick in at the $800 level of the American History category. Martha Stewart finds it. It's never not going to be weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, wagers 2000 of her 4300 Um Jeff has 3,500, Charles has 1,800, and she gets the clue, William Cody's two-word nickname, or perhaps what he sent out to his clients at the end of each month. 
And she says, what is Wild Bill? Mm. Um, the correct answer here is Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill Cody. Yeah. Um, and she's thinking of Wild Bill Hickok. Yep. Buffalo Bill's grave is not too far west of Denver. Hmm. Good to know. All right. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Jeff is in the lead at 3,500. Martha has 2,300. Charles has 1,800. So he's come back pretty well. Yeah. Um, he, was, he, he could reach first place. Yeah. And not just on a, like, first place drop step. Like, you, like, he, like he is... Yeah, if he, he, is, if he uh, doubles up, then he If he, he doubles, will be he's going to go above. Yeah. They get the final Jeopardy category, JFK. And the clue, in an interview, Jackie confided that JFK regularly fell asleep listening to the soundtrack of this Broadway play. I heard a little chatter about the language here. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, you would call this a cast recording, I think, not a soundtrack. And play typically implies that it's not a musical, so, like, the yeah. writing's just a little weird. I don't think that either of those things obscure what they're trying to get at. Right, and um, I don't think it made it more or less difficult for the players. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're just used to a level of technical precision, I think, uh, from the Jeopardy writers that maybe we don't see in this case. Um, anyway, uh, Charles Barkley wagers all of his 1800 and responds, what is cats? Yeah, man. <laughs> I, just, I just, just go for it. Like, I just really like yeah. the image of JFK falling asleep listening to cats. Yeah. Jeff has wagered 1200 um, and responds, what is Sound of Music, parentheses, was it a play? Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, it was not. <laughs> it's also incorrect. Um, and Martha has wagered 1000 and correctly responds, what was Camelot? Uh, so she is the winner. As the winner, she gets 15000 for College of the Atlantic. Um, uh, Jeff is in second place. Uh with $10,000 for Beagles and Buddies, and uh, Charles Barkley gets $10,000 for Cornerstone Schools of Alabama. Which is really cool. Obviously, all the, all the charities are, like, good. Uh, but I kind of wanted to hear more about Cornerstone Schools of Alabama, probably because I'm an educator in an impacted community, probably dealing with a somewhat similar population. So uh, it it was something that piqued my interest, and I thought that was really cool that Charles picked that ca- uh, charity. Yeah. Were you going to say something about Camelot? No. <laughs> I, okay. I know nothing about Camelot other than it was a musical. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that about there all. was well, a was it a biography finding Cam- what I don't even know what it was called. JFK's like the something with Camelot. J F K Camelot. What is Camelot you referring to his presidency as Camelot? I don't Yeah, I don't I it's it's a thing that is yeah. referred to with JFK, so that was the pointer there. Yes. But I, I have no idea what that is. So, anyway. So, the game uh, from Thursday. It originally aired on February 7th, 2001. Uh, this was also in that same week at the Las Vegas Hilton. And this was featuring Eric Idle, an actor and comedian from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Dana Delaney, an actress from China Beach. And Wayne Brady, an actor and comedian from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And they got the Jeopardy round categories, Mammals, the Chairman of the Board, 
Museums of Las Vegas, The Bod Squad, Hodgepodge, and abbreviated S. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a fun set of contestants. Kind of a nice balance between having fun with it and covering a good portion of the material. And my, my seven-year-old looked at the names on the podiums and said, Mom, uh, he, misread, he misread Dana Delaney. He said, he said, Mom, it's Wayne and Diana. They're both superhero alter egos. Do you think they did that on purpose? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't, yes. Yes, sure. Uh, that's what they were thinking. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what they were thinking of as uh, Diana Prince and Bruce Wayne, surely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We have our first daily double at the $300 level of the mammals category as the seventh pick. Wayne finds it and wagers 300 of his 700. Uh, Dana has 300 at that point and Eric has zero. Um, The clue is, common in Dixie, a razorback is a wild one of these. And he correctly responds, what is a boar? Mm -hmm. University of Arkansas, I think, are the razorbacks. That sounds right. There was that feral hog viral tweet. (laughs) meme. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Although apparently feral hogs are like a legitimate problem. They're they're an issue. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That I think uh, coastal folks are not necessarily aware of. Yeah. Reply All did a really interesting uh, feral feral hogs podcast uh, exploring that whole situation. Did they have 30 to 50 of them on as a guest? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how you would do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like Wayne Brady has sort of an unfair. Well, you know what? They all did fine. They all did fine. But I feel like uh, being an improv, a professional improv comedian, gives you this kind of uh, like on stage, like think on your feet, like be flexible. Yes. And kind of, kind of training that I feel like Mm -hmm. would be very applicable for Jeopardy. Yeah. I mean, he certainly seemed to be in command. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, he is in a pretty good lead at 3,900. Dana's at 1,300 and Eric's at 900. They left three of the clues on the board, but uh, he had a, he took the lead and, and maintained it through that whole round. And they get the double Jeopardy categories Historic tabloid headlines. Al or George? Uh, you uh, you name the famous Al or George, as the case may be. Um, we learned it from Shakespeare. Vaudeville, travel, and lucky seven, with seven in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got reference in that lucky seven category to uh, the only Japanese film that is ever on Jeopardy. I think, in the $400 clue. A 16th century Japanese village is the main setting for this 1954 foreign film classic, and that's The Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. Know that The Seven Samurai is a film if you're going on Jeopardy, and know that it was important. So, Daily Double number two shows up in the historic tabloid headlines category. Uh, it's at the $400 level. Eric finds this one. He is tied with Dana at $2,300 behind Wayne's $4,700. And he goes all in. It's the only only option there. And he gets mm-hmm. the clue. Her 1536 demise was covered in An Affair to Remember. That's A-N-N-E. Queen loses head over her brother. 
and that is Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. These uh these historic headlines were I think the the writers having a bit too much fun. A little too much, yeah. Uh the one directly below that I guess had come up right before it. Um but she's the subject of the seventeenth century headline scene here. Loca Poca saves boy toy from fatal clubbing. Uh they were perplexed because it's a weird clue. Understandably um, <laughs> understandably perplexed. Turns out it was Pocahontas. Turns out. Uh, Daily Double number three comes up at the $600 level of the travel category. Uh, Eric Idle finds it and wagers 1,000 of his 4,800. He's in the lead, uh, just 100 ahead of Wayne. Dana has 3,100. And he gets the clue. The Sony Entertainment Center in Berlin offers a virtual reality fun ride on this Beatles vehicle. And he uh, searched for it for a second, and then it came to him. Uh, what is a yellow submarine? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was fun seeing him on Jeopardy. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, good scores. Another another good game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wayne yeah. is in the lead at 9,700. Eric is in second place at 7,000. And Dana is at 6,100. They get the final Jeopardy category, Space Exploration. And the clue, in October 1998, this man went into space as the oldest U.S. astronaut ever. And they all get it, right? With who they is John it. Glenn. Yeah. Man, 1998. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> rem- yeah. Oh, geez. Dana wagered 6,000. Eric wagered 7,000. Uh, and Wayne wagered 2,000. Which was not sound betting <laughs> from Wayne's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so because of that, Eric ended up winning with 14,000 mm-hmm. as his total. Yes. And Wayne came in third. <laughs> Wayne. Uh, cover bets. Cover bet. Yeah. I yep. know it's for charity, <laughs> but like, still, cover bet. Yeah. I, w- I went on a rant to, um, to a bunch of people recently that, uh, you never know what you need to study for Jeopardy because you don't know what they're going to ask you, except you know they're going to ask you what your final wager is. You know that is the only question <laughs> that you know for sure you're going to be asked. It's the only preparation that is 100% def- or almost 100%. I guess you can you can finish in the red and not get to participate. But it's the only question that you can be pretty sure is going to come up. Um, yep. So you should That's prepare good, for it. That's a good way to phrase it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so still 10,000 going to, uh, going to Avon Breast Cancer Crusade for Wayne Brady and 10,000 to, uh, Scleroderma Research Foundation from Dana and 15,000 to Friends of the Los Angeles Free Clinic from Eric. Mm -hmm. That's right. And on Friday, we had the game from May 7th, 2010. This was, uh, the final game of the Million Dollar Celebrity Invitational. And we had the contestants Jane Curtin, an actress from Kate and Alley and Third Rock from the Sun, uh, who is coming into this two-day total point affair with a subtotal of 29,000. Cheech Marin, an actor, comedian, director, writer, and musician from Lost. 
why did they introduce him as Primloss? I mean, sure, okay. Um, with a subtotal of 6,600. And Michael McKean, a Grammy winner, Oscar nominee, and multi-talented performer from Hairspray and The Pajama Game, mm-hmm. with a subtotal of 31,600. And we get the Jeopardy categories, Life with the Hood, Celebrity Moms, um, this was right before Mother's Day, Hotels, The Biblical Sense, Brands that sound like verbs and a negative attitude. And obviously, this is the finals of a tournament, so it's going to be, you know, they're, they're going to do. Higher level. They're going to do pretty well. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, they, this was impressive. It was fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Good Cheech solid Marin, game. man. <laughs> There's some cognitive dissonance in watching him just own the Jeopardy board. Yeah. Like, right, like his whole uh, his, his comedy persona is not yeah. consistent with this very very sharp guy with the quick recall. Yeah, and quick buzzer reflexes, right? Like wide ranging knowledge. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Um, we had a triple stumper in the biblical sense at the thousand dollar level. Um, in Genesis three, God warns Eve away from some fruit, which is not necessarily an apple. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Saying, ye shall not eat of it, nor do this to it. Nobody knows that one. Uh, ye shall not eat of it, nor shall ye touch it. Hmm. You know, I'd, I wouldn't expect necessarily anybody to sort of have that sort of memorized and ready to go. Yeah, like, that was one thing that crossed my mind, but I, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have gone for it, you know? Because that's not, like, that's not the trivia fact, right? Yeah. The trivia fact is like around the tree of the fruit, you know, fruit of the tree of knowledge and all that, but like not touching it. It's like, well, that might be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It turns out life with the hood was all about Robin Hood, Robin Hood. which is really cool. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, I enjoyed the whole category. So we get the daily double at the $600 level in brands that sound like verbs. It's pick number 24 coming pretty late in the round. Cheech finds it. He's in the lead at 4600. Jane is in second place at 2200 and Michael's in third at 1600. So he's been he's had a pretty good round so far. He wagers 2000 and he gets the clue. This six-letter telecom company sounds fleet of foot. And it takes him a little while I think to figure out what it's asking cuz he like kind of shakes his head and says telecom, and then he seems to start getting close to the answer, but he doesn't get it, uh, and that is sprint. Mm-hmm. So, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, <laughs> Michael is at twenty eight hundred, uh, Cheech is at thirty six hundred, and Jane is at three thousand, and they get the double Jeopardy categories: the spirit of nineteen seventy six, which was just questions about nineteen seventy six. The New York Times movies, so those all had to do with New York Times reviews. How low can you go? Science, their main musical instrument, and retronyms, which are terms that mm-hmm. retroactively became applied to things. Mm-hmm. I like retronyms. You like word things, though, in general. I do, yeah. I liked the musical instrument uh, category. Oh, yeah, of course you did. I did okay on it, except I didn't know the first one van Clyburn. uh there's a there's like a whole um piano competition named after him he was a a big name big name in piano playing cheech did not have as good a uh, double jeopardy round 
he had some big incorrect responses mm-hmm. and uh and the others seemed to pick up the buzzer so yeah we get the second daily double as the 10th pick of the round at the $2000 level of how low can you go uh jane finds this one and wagers 1000 of her 8200 Michael's at 6,400 at this point. She's just at 4,800. And she gets the clue. This chemical element has the lowest melting point of any metal. And that's why it's liquid at room temperature. And you could tell that she was not reading ahead. They had, uh, that it's Jeopardy wisdom to like, don't let Alex read to you. Speed mm-hmm. read ahead so that you have more time to think about whether you're going to try to buzz in and, and recall. Um, but you could see her, she you, she was looking really discouraged. And then as Alex got to liquid at room temperature, her face lights up and she responds, uh, what is mercury? Mm-hmm. She'd also had some back and forth with Cheech about whether uh, where he was in, uh, egging her on to bed at all. Um, yeah, she should have done it. Yeah, should have done it. Never the wrong bet. That's not true. Yeah. No, it's, Some, it is sometimes, sometimes really the wrong bet. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, we get the third daily double in the science category. It's pick number 20. Uh, Michael finds this one. It's at the $1,600 level. He wagers 2500 of his 8400 He was tied with Cheech behind Jane's 10800 You got the clue. It's a substance that conducts current. Sodium and potassium are two of the ones Gatorade restores to your body. He seemed to also have a, a similar kind of experience as Jane in the previous one, where like starts out reading it and has no idea, and then the clue at the end gives it away, and uh, he gets it. Mm-hmm. That's an electrolyte. That's right. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Michael is in the lead with 12,100. Cheech has 6,000, Jane has 10,000, and they get the final Jeopardy category, Middle East countries, and the clue, in 1949, this kingdom dropped the word trans from the beginning of its name. Cheech has wagered everything, uh, all 6,000, and responds, what is Jordan? And that is correct, formerly Transjordan. He seemed a little surprised, but there it is. Uh, Jane had wagered everything but a dollar. Uh, 9999 did not come up with a country. Uh, Michael wagered 8000 so just a little more than a cover bet. Um, but he had uh, what is Palestine written down, and I thought he had crossed out like trans. I thought he'd crossed trans. out trans, too. Yeah, yeah. So Cheech wins the game. But it is a two-day total point affair. Um, so their previous scores are added, uh, giving them cumulative scores of 35,700 for Michael, 29,001 for Jane, 18,600 for Cheech. And so Michael's charity of choice, the International Myeloma Foundation, uh, receives $1 million dollars an important cause. Jane's charity of choice is the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. They get $250,000. And uh, for Cheech, $100,000 is donated to the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. Um, yeah, good games. Yeah. This, like, fun games to watch. Fun games to watch. This, That's right. 
Yes. <laughs> Some of them were good games. <laughs> we, we, I feel like we saw the range from like contestants who were like just kind of there goofing around and it was fun because they were like people we knew from other contexts mm-hmm. um, to like kind of the, the best of the best, the like, I sort of recognize them from TV, but like, look at them tear up that Jeopardy board. Yeah. So we got uh, an email from um, Matt Carberry, one of our listeners and, uh, hey, Patreon supporters. Uh, So thanks, Matt, um, who answered something we had mused about on our last show. Um, We were wondering about triple zero games. um, And uh, he pointed us to the relevant information. There have been eight such games uh, where the contestants end up with a three-way tie at zero. Four have happened in regular play. Um, Two have happened in tournaments. Uh, Two happened in Celebrity Jeopardy. And the next one after the episode two one was was less than seven months later. So um, I think they implied otherwise in in the intro. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you know, I guess as people were kind of figuring out how Jeopardy strategy works, um, you would kind of expect that to come up more and uh, to get less frequent as you as you go on and people kind of get the get the hang and betting strategy becomes more nuanced. It's like the right. game is kind of developing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing he informed us of was the uh, the introduction, I guess, phrasing of either you know, so-and-so contestant from this place or originally from this place. Uh, And he informed us that it was used as recently as the 2015-2016 season. Uh, But at the uh, start of season 33, that option was no longer available. Mm -hmm. It can act as kind of a, like a veneer, like obscure that the number of contestants coming from a, uh, a particular region in this case Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeopardy has a lot of con- has to have a lot of contestants from Southern California because that's part of how they sort of structure their taping days. Um, we've talked about that a little bit before. Um, that uh, for the last game of the last the the second second day of two consecutive taping days, um, you have two local alternates so that one can have their name drawn and the other can drive home and then drive back in some weeks or months later to uh, to come to a, to a different taping. I've had a lot of friends who are in major metropolitan areas um, really struggle to um, to get that first audition. And uh, I have a little bit of a feeling that part of their effort to not seem geographically monotonous um, means that if you move to the suburbs, you do a little better. That was that was certainly my experience I've taken. Uh, I took quite a few Jeopardy tests and uh, did well on most of them, I think. Um, and I did get one audition when I was living in New York City, but uh, the audition, the second audition I got and the one that paid off was after I moved out of New York City. I, ha- I have a sense that they uh, get kind of flooded with folks from major cities and have to... Uh, have to do a little bit of finessing of the contestant pool to not just have it be like New York, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, because they get they get quite a few potential contestants applying from those those cities from, from cities in general, not those specific ones. So again, 
We've come to the point in our podcast where we come to you hat in hand and ask you to give money to a cause of your choosing. This week, we mm-hmm. saw 15 examples of people giving to charitable causes that they thought were important. So mm-hmm. you can do the same. Obviously, you don't have to give $10,000. If you have $10,000 to give, by all means. But uh, yeah. if you have money that you can send to an important cause in your community or in the country, uh, please do so. If you know of one or many, then go ahead and do that. In fact, you can let us know about those causes if if you want them to get plugged here. Um, yeah. We have been highlighting the Community Justice Exchange and Black Lives Matter, but of course mm-hmm. there are a lot of organizations and a lot of people doing good work, so it shouldn't right. be that hard to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so find a way to get involved um, with your money, with your time, whatever makes sense for you. Um, it's important. All right, so... You have some guesses. I do have deep dive guesses. First, are you going to be talking about Buffalo Bill? I am not going to be talking about uh, Buffalo Bill. That was, I thought that was my best guess. I wanted to come out strong. It's a, it's a solid guess. Thanks. My second guess is, uh, are you talking about Prohibition? Ooh, that would be interesting. Mm. But no, I'm not. Okay. And my third guess, uh, these are all triple stumpers, so I'm, that's what I'm, what I'm basing it off of. Are you going to be taking a deep dive into British currency with a shilling? Mmm, no, I, mm, that would be interesting again, but no, no, that also is incorrect. Um, so... No one got the correct answer on the clue that I'm referencing, um, but it was a Final Jeopardy clue. Mm. This was from the game that aired on, it was Monday. Yes, it was Monday. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was the uh, Carol Burnett, Donna Mills, Regis Philbin game. And the clue was, for his licentious behavior, Monk Grigory Yefimovich Novik earned this nickname, meaning debauched one. And uh, the correct response there, I think folks will remember, is who is Rasputin? Although I think uh, Rasputin may not be the correct Russian pronunciation, but people say Rasputin, we're going to go with Rasputin. Um, So, uh, (laughs) and as I mentioned, um, the only uh, real answer I had was the bad guy from Anastasia. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've heard of him. So I thought this might be a good chance for me to get a little clearer. Maybe maybe you and our listeners to get a little clearer on uh, on the answer to that question. Who is Rasputin? Who is, Who is Rasputin? Pretty quickly, I found out that the, that the final Jeopardy clue seems to be outdated or maybe like ambiguous in its correctness. Um, but let's get into it. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin was born in uh, on January 22, 1869, to farmer Efim Rasputin. We think his last name, his, uh, his family name was Rasputin, and uh, his mother is Anna Parshakova in a small village uh, near Tumen in Siberia. Um, and the Jeopardy clue refers to Rasputin as a nickname or a name that was given to him later. And that was believed for a 
time. Uh, it can mean debauched one. Um, but historians no longer think that this was a nickname. They think this was his family name. And uh, it can mean debauched one. It also can mean like the confluence of two rivers. Interesting. Where do those two so, things come together? Right? Like, yeah, how do those two I, words I'm have the same? Sh- like, I, <laughs> right? Isn't that weird? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I think the, the records from this, from this village are not all that thorough. It's, you know, it's a little ambiguous, but scholars at this point think it's a family name from what I've been able to gather. Hmm. Uh, Rasputin's family were, uh, rural peasants. Uh, his father was a farmer and did a number of other sort of things to a lesser degree over the course of his life. Rasputin's first name was Gregory, um, after St. Gregory of Nyssa. And he went to a little bit of school, but was not really formally educated in his childhood, um, was most likely illiterate throughout his childhood and only learned to read and write later. And there are some records of him being kind of an unruly youth. Uh, the only things we have real documentation of are some minor problems with like drinking and petty crimes, um, you know, small thefts and that kinds of thing. Mm-hmm. Later, numerous stories would circulate about him being like a like a child criminal or also having supernatural powers, um, but it's likely that those were fabricated or at least circulated later in response to all of the things that happened with him later in his life. So in 1886, uh, at the age of 17, he meets... Praskovia Dubrovina, attempting all these Russian things, which I did listen to how to pronounce once, but apologies to anyone who actually speaks Russian. I'm sure that some of these are going to be terribly wrong. He meets her on a trip to a town called Abalak, about 250 kilometers away, um, uh, and begins to court her. They married in February of 1887, and she moved to Rasputin's hometown uh, which I didn't attempt the name of earlier. Uh, it's Pokrovskoye. She would live there um, throughout all of his later travels. Um, they had seven children over the course of their marriage, only, although only three survived to adulthood. In 1897, so uh, 10 years later, they've been married for 10 years, and uh, Rasputin is 28. Um, he starts to develop a deeper interest in religion, um, he makes a pilgrimage to St. Nicholas Monastery at Vercotrier. Um, I'm sure I didn't get that Russian right. And there are different stories about why he made that pilgrimage. A vision of the Virgin Mary or the patron, patron saint of that particular monastery are two of those stories. Um, interactions with a young theology student that made him curious about religion and about that particular monastery um, is another story. And then another explanation is that he may have been avoiding punishment for horse theft. Mm. In any case, uh, he leaves behind his wife, his pregnant wife and his infant son to go on this pilgrimage and check out this monastery uh, where he gets to know a starets, an elder uh, named Makari. Although this monastery is influential, influential for him, he um, has complaints about it. He says that some of the monks engaged in homosexuality and that the monastic lifestyle was too coercive. I'm not really sure what that meant to him. Hmm. So he has his, he has his objections, um, but he returns to his hometown after this pilgrimage changed. Um, this is when he takes on his kind of hallmark disheveled appearance. 
He becomes vegetarian, he gives up alcohol, and he becomes, like, fervently religious with, like, loud singing and praying and stuff. He becomes what is known as a stronic, a holy wanderer or pilgrim. He's uh, He spends months out of each year wandering and going to religious sites. Um, he's believed to have gone as far as Athos, Greece, which was, like, the center of Eastern Orthodox monastic life. And by 1900, he has a circle of, like, acolytes or followers in his hometown. Um, they're having secret prayer meetings in a makeshift chapel that was constructed in his father's root cellar. There are starting to be rumors circulating about his female followers doing, like, ritual washing of his body before each meeting. <laughs> um, there are rumors of um, affiliation with the Klisti sect, uh, which was said to practice like self-flagellation and also orgies. The rumors are unsubstantiated, but you know he's starting to be like a weird guy that there are weird rumors about. To mm -hmm. you know, at the very least, sometime between 1902 and 1904, he travels to Kazan on the Volga River um, and gains uh, a reputation there as a wise and holy man. He gets the support of several of the local religious figures there, including the Father Superior of the Seven Lakes Monastery, local church officials, and uh, the and Bishop Christanos. And uh, they give him letters of recommendation to Bishop Sergei, the rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary at the Alexander Nevsky Monastery and help him make arrangements to travel to St. Petersburg. That happens, the dates are a little ambiguous, but it happens some, either in 1903 or like the 1904-05 winter. In any case, off he goes to St. Petersburg. Um, and by 1905, he is in St. Petersburg and has made a number of influential aristocratic acquaintances and friends. And this is where the story of him that we know starts to starts to pick up. He meets uh, Tsar Nicholas II um, on November 1st, 1905. Uh, Nicholas writes in his diary that he and Alexandra have made the acquaintance of a man of God. Um, Alexandra being the Tsarina, of course. Shortly after that, Rasputin returns to his hometown. And then in July 1906, he's back in St. Petersburg. He telegrams the Tsar to ask for permission to present the, to present them with an icon of a saint from his home region, um, and he meets the children of the Tsar in October. Hmm. In December 1906, Rasputin asks to change his name to uh, change his family name to Rasputin Novi, which means New Rasputin, um, and Nicholas has that request expedited. Hmm. It's unclear when the idea that Rasputin could heal. Um, Tsar Nicholas's son Alexei was first introduced. Um, it's possible that it was suggested to um, to the family as early as the first time they met him, but possibly later. Um, in any case, Alexei, the only son of Tsar Nicholas II, suffered from hemophilia, and uh, Rasputin's sort of claim to fame comes as the family's like mystic healer guy. Right. So in spring 1907, uh, Rasputin is summoned to pray for Alexei, who is suffering from an internal hemorrhage, um, and Alexei recovers the next morning. Mm -hmm. In response to 
this and other similar things. The Sarina develops this passionate attachment to Rasputin because she believes that he can heal and protect her son. And he becomes an essential member of the royal entourage. His growing influence with the royal family is troubling to many influential figures uh, at the time, but to no avail. Uh, He's accused by his enemies of uh, religious heresy. Um, He was suspected of exerting undue political influence over the Tsar and was even rumored to be having an affair with the Tsarina. Mm -hmm. Um, There are numerous accusations of immoral, illicit, and evil practices. There are stories of numerous mistresses and claims that he invited uh, sexual liaisons by claiming that physical contact with him had like a supernatural healing effect. Um, He's nicknamed the Mad Monk. So not an especially popular guy, kind (laughs) of a very controversial figure, uh, to say the least. In 1910, 1911, the Prime Minister Stolypin sent the Tsar a report on Rasputin's misdeeds. Uh, the Tsar expelled Rasputin, but uh, Tsarina Alexandra had him returned within a matter of months and uh, wouldn't hear anything else about him. Mm-hmm. In summer 1912, Alexei develops a hemorrhage in his thigh and groin. At this point, uh, Rasputin is in his home region in Siberia. Um, Alexandra telegrams him, asking him to pray, and he sends this reassuring telegram saying, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. <laughs> the next day, Alexei's bleeding stops. Um, that's kind of the most dramatic and surprising uh, such story. One theory is that by having the doctors sort of stop messing around with uh, the, the the child, that perhaps that sort of facilitated his ability to rest and heal. Yeah. Yeah. The first attempt to assassinate Rasputin happens on July 12th of 1914. Um, a 33-year-old peasant woman named Chionya Guseva attempted to assassinate Rasputin by stabbing him in the stomach outside his home in Siberia. Um, however, he recovered after hospitalization and surgery. Um, this woman who uh, attempted to assassinate him was a follower of a former priest who had supported Rasputin, um, but later denounced his sexual escapades and self-aggrandizement mm. and had been banished from St. Petersburg and ultimately defrocked. Ah. Um, yeah, I think he was defrocked after this assassination attempt. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a tangled web here. Mm-hmm. 1915 takes us to the peak of Rasputin's power. Um, Russia enters World War I. Tsar Nicholas goes to take command of the troops, leaving Alexandra in charge of Russia's internal affairs with Rasputin as her advisor to the great dismay of uh, the many folks who have concerns about his... (laughs) Yeah, everyone. Everyone. uh, I'll put up some of the, um, the images that I found, the like... Uh, like political cartoon kinds of things. They're uh, fascinating. Uh, In December 1916, the uh, successful assassination happens, although uh, it's it's quite a story. A group of nobles led by Prince Felix Yusupov, uh, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, and right-wing politician Vladimir Purishkevich plot to assassinate Rasputin. Um, and this extended, convoluted assassination takes place on the 29th and 30th of December by our calendar, 
although the calendar that Russia was using it at at the time had those dates as the 16th and 17th of December to make things even more confusing. Mm, perfect. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so um, Yusupov claims that he invited Rasputin to his home, the Moika Palace, um, where he gave him tea and cakes laced with cyanide, which Rasputin initially declined, but ultimately ate. However, he was not affected by the poison. He also asked for and drank three glasses of Madeira wine, uh, which Yusupov also poisoned. However, the poison had no effect on Rasputin. At this point, Yusupov went upstairs to consult with his co-conspirators. He got a pistol there, returned to the, um, the, the basement chamber where he was entertaining Rasputin. I don't know if it's weird that they were hanging out in the basement. It's Russia. I mean... Yeah, I'm going to assume that's a Russian thing. So he comes back with the pistol and he instructs Rasputin to look at the crucifix and say a prayer and he shoots him once in the chest. He leaves the body, assuming that Rasputin is dead, and he and the co-conspirators go to Rasputin's apartment, uh, where one of them enters the apartment in Rasputin's coat and hat to make it look as if Rasputin has returned home for the night. Then they return to Moika Palace to deal with the body. But surprise, Rasputin is not dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he attacks Yusupov, who frees himself and flees upstairs. Rasputin follows him and is shot by Purishkovich in the courtyard. Um, They wrap his body in cloth and throw it into the Malaya Nevka River. The news of his death begins to spread almost immediately. Um, Porishkovich, who fired that last shot, spoke openly about Rasputin's murder to two soldiers and a policeman uh, who were investigating reports of shots shortly after the event, but he urged them not to tell anyone else. Russia. I don't know. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <laughs> Blood is found on the bridge railing and there's a, and, a, and one boot on the icy surface of the river, um, and those two things lead the police to investigate that area. Rasputin's body is recovered there under the ice on January 1, 1917. The autopsy shows numerous wounds, but no signs of poisoning, oddly enough. Hmm. Um, hmm. That is yeah. so weird. <laughs> Isn't it weird? Um, and Rasputin was buried in a small service attended by only a few members of the imperial family Neither his wife, nor his children, nor his mistresses were invited. Uh, And very shortly after that, Russian Revolution starts. That's another story for another day. Um, But shortly after the Tsar abdicated the throne, um, Rasputin's body was exhumed and burned so that the grave would not become a rallying place for supporters of the old regime. And... uh, yeah, that's not it's not the longest deep dive ever we've, we've ever had, but that is the story of Rasputin. Um, and let me just throw in one other side note, which is that if you have never heard the 1978 disco song Rasputin by the Germany-based uh, Euro disco group Boney M, uh, I'm not sure if that's how is that how you pronounce it. I don't know. I don't know um, either. You should. Yeah. Have you heard the song, though? I don't think so. I had not heard it until I uh, came across it researching this, and it is so weird. Um, I believe that. So, yeah. 
Google Rasputin song and you will find this song. Okay. Which is bizarre. Yeah. So who is Rasputin? Now you know. That is Rasputin. That is Rasputin. Cool. He's a weird guy. I'm not sure I did him complete justice. I mean, but... there were a lot of rumors. Yeah. Any any of them I'm sure you could have elaborated on, but I don't think we needed to. I think we got, yeah. got the idea. All right. Are you ready for a quiz? Yeah. Ready to finally <laughs> do well. All right. This is a quiz on mystics, healers, and charlatans. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Question one. We're going to start with a poetry quote. This is the only poetry in the quiz. You? (laughs) Just when I think we're starting to get along again. (laughs) All right. Uh, Quote, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Writes this 13th century Persian Sufi mystic, who is, perhaps surprisingly, one of the best-selling poets in the United States. Oh. Sufi mystic. I, I know that I have known this. Uh, but I don't think that I am going to get there, so I am going to guess... Zoroaster. It's not a bad guess. Rumi is the correct response here. Rumi. Oh, yeah. yeah yes, Rumi. of course. Of course. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yes. Um, I've actually, I've been, I've seen something, some interesting stuff recently um, suggesting that the translations of Rumi really kind of whitewash uh, his actual words. What? Um, yeah. Shocking. Um, I know. They're, they're like, you know, he's, he is a he's a Muslim Sufi mystic, um, and his his uh, the the contemporary English translations of his work make him sound really just sort of like a you know twenty first century kind of New Agey guy, yeah. um, possibly because some of the religious language has been kind of obscured mm-hmm. in translation. Um, anyway, uh, question two. There was a scandal this week uh, with the president and members of the first family retweeting videos from a doctor by the name of Stella Emanuel, uh, leaving aside some of the vivid religious imagery that was found in her videos that captured the public imagination. Um, She uh, made completely unsubstantiated health claims that a cocktail of three ingredients, uh, three ingredients could, could cure or three uh, medications could cure COVID-19 for five points each. So this is potentially up to a 15 point question. What are the three components of her medication cocktail? Um, one, an anti-malarial, one, an antibiotic, and one, a mineral supplement. Okay. So the anti-malarial would be hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. The, uh, I think the, Antibacteria or antibiotic, or whatever, is um. Oh God, how do you pronounce that? Uh, az- azithromycin or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's close enough. Okay. I'll take that. Azithromycin. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the mineral supplement, I really have no idea. So I am going to say 
B12. But that's All a right, vitamin, you get it. That's true. Whatever. Magnesium, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Uh, it, you, you're, you're, still at, you're still at 10 points. So you get 10 points. Um, uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are correct. Uh, the mineral supplement that she claims is uh, helpful is zinc. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because zinc keeps um, cold. Yeah. Whatever. There, I think there is some clinical evidence for zinc. And like, yeah, it's a very uh, anyway. Um, for like treating symptoms. in a very limited way, yeah. and for for yeah, for treating cold, like shortening the duration of cold symptoms. Right. Um, that's not it. That's not what a cure for is. COVID nineteen. Yeah. No. When you treat the symptoms, um, you're not curing it. Right. Anyway. Exactly. Uh, uh, all right. <laughs> all right healers and charlatans indeed mm-hmm. all right uh question three you're at 10 points um charles ponzi of course was one famous charlatan the namesake of the ponzi scheme but the largest ponzi scheme in history was perpetrated by what other charlatan who defrauded investors of 18 billion dollars is that bernie madoff it was bernie madoff okay. Okay, because that was a, that was the immediate thought that came to mind. I was like, "Well, that's the only maybe name." I have, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have put another clue in there. For oh him, no! But was... Yeah, I feel like yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, so you're at twenty points going into question four. This phrase has become a shorthand for deceptive marketing, especially in the health and wellness field. But back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, you might have found this phrase on a label, perhaps marketed under the Clark Stanley's brand name. What is this useless product marketed as a cure-all? I have a couple guesses because I don't know if it's what it would like if it was actually labeled that. Um, But I might, I'm going to go with snake oil. Snake oil is correct. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, uh, so uh, this was sort of part of like Wild West culture, mm-hmm. like shows, mm-hmm. um, is that they would claim that it was like an oil made from like from like rattlesnakes. Yeah. And uh, Clark Stanley was an especially prominent uh, snake oil company like proprietor, uh, the Rattlesnake King. Um, he was prosecuted for his useless uh products um and as part of the investigation a bottle of clark stanley snake oil liniment was analyzed and found to contain mineral oil uh one percent fatty oil assumed to be tallow mm-hmm. um capsaicin turpentine and camphor nice nice uh, yeah that turpentine yep so let's see you are at 30 points very nice and question five All right. We've talked about mystics like Hildegard of Bingen on the podcast before. Um, So I'm not going to ask a question about her specifically, but I am going to ask if you know of another mystic nun. This one is from 16th century Spain and is remembered for her autobiography, as well as her works The Interior, Interior Castle and The Way of Perfection. She's been depicted in religious ecstasy by sculptor Bernini. Who is this mystic nun? Oh. Saint. Oh. I can picture it. 
I know the sculpture. Oh, what is that? What is her name? Uh, the name that's kind of floating is is Beatrice. So I'm going to say Beatrice. Mm, this is St. Teresa, Teresa of Avila. Ex- Ecstasy of St. Teresa. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So you are at 30 points. And the final category is the 2020 Democratic primary. Oh, great. I feel very confident there. <laughs> there were only a few to pick from, and things definitely didn't get obscured or confused. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I've been I've been doing so poorly in these quizzes lately, I, I just got to go for it, so I'll bet it all. I think you should. Yeah. All right. Good. All right. I'm not saying whether I put her in here as a mystic, a healer, or a charlatan. All I'm saying is that it would be a miracle if most folks didn't consider her at least one of those. She dropped out of the Democratic primary race on January 10, 2020. Who is she? I really don't know. I, I, I mean, I have names, but I don't know Does it, who you're getting at. Let me give you one at. more clue. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned an affiliation with Oprah Winfrey. Nope, that's not doing it for me. Um, the the only person I could remember who I think said some really bizarre stuff was Marianne Williamson. That's the one. Okay, okay, jeez. All right. <laughs> to be honest, I have. I mean, January was was you know four years ago or whatever. Right. So uh, you know, there's been a lot that I have put into my brain to forget about all of that, all of the primary <laughs> nonsense. But oof. Yeah. Oh. That was way too nice stressful. Nice job. All right. 60 points. Very well done, Kyle. Ugh, um, thank you. Hopefully our listeners got some of those, too. Oh, I'm sure they did better. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Or if they got the same ones, they got there faster. So. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of our... Speaking of our listeners, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, It's a great joy to share Jeopardy with you in these dark and tumultuous times. Um, So we're glad that we can can do this. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us if you would leave a review or a rating as well. And uh, if you're interested in checking out our Patreon, it is uh, patreon.com slash potentpotables. And you can always tell your friends, spread the word, uh, see which uh, which of you does better on the quiz at the end. You know, have a little friendly competition. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Americans are desperate for competition right now. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's something that you're interested in, I'm sure you could find some on the social medias. You could also find us there on Facebook. We're Potent Potables. On Twitter, it's at Potent Potables 1. Uh, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. That's right. Uh, we'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy! from the vault. They're doing the Million Dollar Masters tournament, so that'll be great. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.